Let me take this opportunity and thank you for uh, allowing me to come and be part of your conference this year. It's been uh, a delight, as it always is, to be able to come down and reacquaint myself and renew friendships and sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. <clears throat> and it's been good to meet uh, some new folk as well and to be able to spend some time together these days fellowshipping and studying God's Word. So I appreciate you folk as a church. Um, appreciate all of the effort you put into it and especially want to thank the ladies. Um, I uh, do that um, from time to time. We'll have things at our church. And my heart, I, I want to have those things, those conferences, special meetings, things like that. But my heart always goes out to the ladies, I guess, because I know my own wife and how much effort it is for her. Especially when you have children and family, you're already pretty flat out. And then to load yourself up with all the food and things of the conference, that's a, that's a big effort. And I know I speak for the other men who are here, and we really appreciate the ladies being, I think, much like Third John says, just a fellow helper to the truth. And through your ministry, allowing the opportunity for the truth to go forward. So I know we appreciate that. I do. And I especially want to thank Pastor Davies and his wife for their very gracious hospitality. Uh, that little room up there in the corner is like a little haven. You can kind of go up there. You can't hear much. You can kind of hide away in there and uh, sleep and uh, study and prepare. But uh, the food and the gracious hospitality has been very much appreciated, and I thank you for that. Count them, of course, as dear friends. and. Um, just look forward to the day when we'll be in heaven and my wife and I can sit down together with them, be able to visit with them a little bit. But thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and uh, throughout the opportunity for you to come north and visit us up there. Uh, if you're coming through, be sure and stop, call ahead, try to have a meal for you, a place to stay or whatever, and enjoy having you there. But it's been a delight this this conference to be able to focus our attention upon the throne scenes of God. I've enjoyed it, and as I was studying for these, I thought, you know, any one of these a preacher could take and develop a whole series about, and that's true of the throne scene and the subject that we want to look at tonight. So let me invite you to take your Bible with me this evening and turn to Ezekiel chapter 1, if you will. <clears throat> the book of Ezekiel in chapter 1, and as you're turning, let me just assure you, or maybe not assure you that we're not actually going to look at everything in this chapter. Someone earlier in the week wanted to know if I was going to look at Ezekiel 1, and I said yes. They said, what about the wheels? You're going to deal with the wheels? And I said, no, I don't want to get caught up in that. <laughs> be, in, be in trouble. Uh, what, I, what I want to do, and there's obviously much here, but I, what I basically want to do is just focus on the throne scene itself and what it is that stood out to Ezekiel. And I'll leave the first 25 verses um, to your pastor. And um, if you put the heat on him in, tw in two weeks, he'll deal with those Sunday night. Is that right? <laughs> so we'll see. But anyway, Ezekiel chapter 1 this evening, and as you probably noted on the um, uh, little brochure, when I title the message tonight, Reflecting the Radiance of God's Glory. Reflecting the Radiance of God's glory. Let's pray tonight and commit our time of study to the Lord. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we gather around your word now, we pray that you would 
give us your mind about that which we study. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, minister your word to our heart. Might the Holy Spirit be able to apply it, help us understand it and apply it to our heart. And Father, as we think of you, might we have great thoughts of you, but thoughts that bring us low before you. And so teach us of yourself tonight. Guide us now, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 1. I'm aiming for verses 26, 27, and 28. But to get a little background to that, we need to begin back in verse 1 and just read a couple of verses here and there as I skip through the chapter. It says in Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 1, Now it came to pass in the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kibar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. Verse 4, And I looked, and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself, and a brightness was about it, and out of the midst thereof as the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also, out of the midst thereof came the likeness, and catch this, the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man, and every one had four faces, and every one had four wings. And then you can see in verse 7, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, it goes on and gives a description of those four living beings. But I call our attention to them because of what we now note in verse 22. And the likeness of the firmament upon the heads of the living creature. Can I catch that? You've got these living creatures, but above their heads there was what's said to be here a firmament or an expanse, a pavement. We've kind of come across that before in the throne scenes. There's an expanse above their heads. And it was as the color of the terrible crystal stretched forth over their heads above. Not necessarily that it was resting on their heads, because in verse number 14, these living creatures are running to and fro like flashes of lightning. But above their heads, there's this expanse. Now, why is that important? Because of what we note now in verse 26. And above the firmament, above the expanse, that was over their heads. So you've got creatures, you've got an expanse over their heads, okay? But above that expanse, verse 26... There was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness as the appearance of a man upon it, above upon it. And I saw as the color of amber, as the appearance of fire round about within, 
from the appearance of his loins even upward and from the appearance of his loins even downward, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire. And it had a brightness round about. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so is the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I, Ezekiel, saw it, I fell upon my face, and I heard a voice of one that spake. On Saturday morning in the first sermon that I brought for the conference, I began with a quote by A.W. Tozer, the saintly Christian missionary and alliance pastor who went to be with the Lord in 1963. You remember I pointed out that during Tozer's life he wrote over 50 books, but the one that I quoted from on Saturday was a book entitled A Knowledge of the Holy. I think we still got one copy over there. It's a slim little volume on the attributes of God. I want to begin tonight again by quoting from Tozer's book, a different quote, but from that book, and this time I want to refer to the opening statement of chapter 1. Quote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Listen again to that last line. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Now read again the last verse, the last statement in verse 28. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard a voice of one that spake. Ezekiel fell on his face and worshipped God with pure and scriptural worship because he had high thoughts of God. And those high thoughts were generated by what he had just seen of God. Or he fell on his face and worshipped because of the word it in that statement. You see what it says? When I saw it, when I saw it, I fell upon my face. Now what's the it that caused Ezekiel to get low before God? The it is found in the previous little statement in that verse. See what it says? This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face. The thing which caused Ezekiel to worship was his seeing the glory of God. Here is Tozer's high thought of God, which caused Ezekiel to get low before God. Ezekiel got a glimpse of God's glory. And if you go on and read through the rest of this book, you will find that throughout his ministry, he never lost 
the imprint of this majestic view of God. Over and over and over again in this book, he refers to this scene and the privilege he had of seeing the glory of God. And it not only catapulted him into a prophetic ministry, but it also enhanced his personal walk with God. In other words, a vision of God's glory is a transforming experience. Now, you can't help but wonder if this is the answer to most of the problems which Christians face today. They simply need a fresh vision of God in his majestic glory. As one writer said, Quote, so many of God's people are overwhelmed with the circumstances of life rather than delighting in the reality of God, who is not only above circumstances, but the providential ruler of them. And folks, is that not true? Is it not true that when believing people truly see the reality of God, that not only do their problems become smaller, I mean, they may not totally go away. We need God's help with the issues of life. But many times those problems become smaller, but also their service for God actually increases at the same time. In other words, a vision of God's splendor and glory really does cause people to fall before him in pure worship. And is that not tonight what all of us desire? I mean, really, I, I, I don't... I, I think I would be accurate in referring to all of us that every one of us have a real desire to serve God. And we want to worship God. And we really do. If, if we know our own heart as a believer, we want to get low before God and really magnify Him. Well, that can happen to us just like it happened to Ezekiel and Daniel and John and Moses. And happen just like can happen just to us, just like it did to them when we catch a vision of the glory of God. So what exactly did Ezekiel see? I mean, I say the glory of God, but what does the text say that he saw? Look at verse 28 again. As the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of of the brightness round about. This, see the word this, what he just described, the bow in the cloud as the appearance of the brightness round about, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And by the way, maybe you noticed in this text from 26, 27, and 28, Ezekiel keeps saying, you know, it was sort of like the appearance and kind of like the likeness, and the likeness was sort of like the appearance, but kind of like this, and Obviously, Ezekiel's having a great deal of difficulty like the other men, like John and Moses, and of really trying to describe what he sees. This is the infinite God. But he is giving us some, you know, some idea. Here's what Ezekiel saw. This appearance, the bow like the cloud in the rain, day of rain, was the appearance of the brightness round about. But folks, what Ezekiel saw had the appearance of this rainbow, and that appearance is said to be the likeness of God. So what is the glory of God that Ezekiel actually saw? What is that? What did he see? 
Well, in these verses, we're told, here in Ezekiel, we're told what that glory looked like. We're told what it looked like. We're not told what it is. We're told what it looked like to the human eye. But there's another passage in the Old Testament that actually indicates to us what the glory of God is. Now, we're going to come back to Ezekiel because I'm going to want us to note what the glory of God looks like. But before we do, I want us to go over and look at what it actually is. And again, to help us tonight, we're going to have four main points to the message. Number one, what is the glory of God? What is it? Number two, what does it look like? Number three, what is the purpose and effect of God's glory on people? And number four, what are we to do with the glory of God? So my points aren't very complicated tonight. What is the glory of God? What does it look like? What was the purpose of it? And what effect did it have on people? And then what are we supposed to do with it? Now to take us just a little bit of time to march through that. But those four points should be easy to follow. So here's what it looked like. What is it? And some of you already know the passage I'm going to have us turn to. And it's over in Exodus 33. Now you're going to want to put, I've got a paper clip at the top of my Bible in Ezekiel 1. You're going to want to put a little piece of paper there. Or maybe, maybe a biro or something there. Because we're going to come back there. And you're probably also going to want to put a little slip of paper in Exodus 33 because we're going to look at Exodus 33 now. Then we're going to go to Ezekiel. Then we're going to come back to Exodus. So you'll need a couple little bookmarks to help you, I think, unless you've got good fingers and you can use your fingers. That's fine. What is the glory of God? Well, in Exodus 33, Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he's in communion with God. And what we're interested in is verse number 18, when Moses says to God, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. Now, that's what we're wanting to know, right? Just like Moses, Lord, show us your glory. What is your glory? Show that to us. What is God's glory? Well, note how God answered in verse 19. He didn't say, no, I'm not going to do it. Here's what he said. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And will be gracious to whom I be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, I will make my goodness pass before you, and I'm going to proclaim my name before you. Now, that's God's answer to Moses' request, and initially that seems very confusing to us. Seems like God's skirting the issue and the question. But he didn't, because go keep reading, verse 20. And he, God said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, 
that I will put thee in the cliff of the rock and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by and I will take my hand and thou shalt see my back parts but my face shall not be seen. Notice what God says in verse 22. My glory will pass by. So Moses asked to see God's glory. And God responds that he will let his glory pass by Moses. But that relates back to verse 19. My goodness and I'll proclaim my name. In other words, the goodness, and you'll have to follow me. This won't be hard, but just follow me. Moses says, let me see your glory. And God doesn't say immediately, okay, my glory will pass by. Initially, he says, my goodness is going to pass by, and I'm going to pass by and proclaim my name. Now, there's a reason for that. You're going to have to hang with me because that's over here on page three of my notes. Okay? And I'll explain that. But all I'm trying to equate here, because we're going somewhere with this, all right, over to chapter 34 in a moment. Show me your glory. Instead of God saying, okay, I'll show you my glory, which he did initially, or eventually, he said, no, I'm going to show you my goodness and proclaim my name. And then he says, you can't see my face, but I will let my glory pass by. And God's glory, there's a, there's a, there's synonymity, they're synonymous. <laughs> the goodness proclaiming the name, in this passage, the goodness and proclaiming the name with God's glory. Now, what is that relationship? Okay, all I'm pointing out is there is a relationship between the goodness of proclaiming the name and God's glory passing by. There's a relationship. Now, what is that relationship? Well, that's where chapter 34 comes in. Go to chapter 34, verse 5. And the Lord descended in a cloud... And stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Oh, hey, now that's just what God said he was going to do to Moses. Show me your glory. God said my name and my goodness will pass by. And so now, and then my glory. But now it says God did pass by with his name. I'm still confused. I still haven't quite put this together. But what's taking place here? Well, read on. Verse 5, so the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by. Ah, oh, see, now God said he was going to pass by with his glory. But the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed. What did he proclaim? The name, Jehovah, the Lord, the Lord God. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that while by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, upon the children's children, upon the third, unto the fourth generation. And then you know what's amazing? Verse 8, Moses did exactly what Ezekiel did. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He too fell down and worshipped God just like Ezekiel said. Now, just follow me. So in chapter 33, God told Moses he would show him his glory. And that had something to do with his proclaiming his name and goodness. 
And so in chapter 34, verse 5, God passes by Moses and does exactly what he said he would do. He proclaims his name and his goodness, verse number 6. Now, initially, we're confused because what we read in verses 6 and 7 doesn't seem to appear to be God's name and his goodness. Merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth and mercy. I mean, that doesn't appear to be his name and his goodness, and we seem confused. But, folks, that's the point. Those things in verse 6 and 7, those things are God's name and his goodness. In other words, these attributes of God in verses 6 and 7 have to do with God's nature, and that's what God is. And they are his name because his name is synonymous for what he is. His name stands for what he is. We all know that in the Bible. When the Bible says God's the most high, or God's a strong tower, or God's the almighty, those names, those titles are actually referring to what God is. They're not just a name like my name, Tracy Minnick. They're actually referring to God's nature and his character. And these attributes, folks, are God's goodness because they are the essence of his goodness manifested toward men. In other words, God revealed some aspect of himself by giving to Moses one of his names. In this case, the name was goodness, which stands for some part of his character. Now, whether or not you followed all of that. Here's what you do need to catch. In 33.18, Moses asked to see God's glory. In 33.22, God agreed and said he would allow his glory to pass by. So in 34.6, the Lord did pass by God passed by in his glory, just like he said he would. But what we read in verses 6 and 7 are these attributes of God. In other words, folks, God's glory is the sum total of his attributes. Show me your glory, okay? I'll pass by and show you my glory. God passed by, but what I read he showed were these attributes. But folks, that's an answer to what God said when he said, I'm going to pass by and show you my glory. God's glory is the sum total of his attributes. And if you could put, you can't do this because God's attributes are infinite, but if you could put all of God's attributes in one place, you would have his glory there. Well, I'll try not to spill the water. Let's say that jar, that, that glass is empty. If I could put all of God's love in there and all of God's mercy in there and all of God's kindness and his graciousness and all of his long-suffering and all of his patience and all of his forgiveness, if I could put all of God's attributes in that glass, I could stand back and say, there is God's glory right there. God's glory is the sum total of all of his perfections. Now, one clarification before we move on. Why are the sum total of God's perfections, why are all the sum total of those perfections, why are they called his glory? 
why aren't they called something else? In other words, why is God's glory called his glory? Why is the sum total of God's perfections called that's his glory? Right there. Why is it called his glory? Well, folks, the glory of something is a feature it possesses which is, unique, which is a unique excellence to that particular object. A feature about that thing which distinguishes it from other things in its class. Mount Everest is a mountain. But what's the glory of Mount Everest? It's its height. Now the Dead Sea also has a glory. It's also a body of water, but its glory is that it is the lowest point on the earth. What's the glory of a giraffe? What's the glory of an elephant? You see, you've got objects or subjects, and they have a unique feature to them, and that feature is their glory. Now, God has a glory. What is God's glory? It is the sum total of these perfections, folks, each of them unique in its superlative height in him. And some of these glories, some of these attributes are unique to him alone. So it's called, they're called God's glory because they're, some of them aren't unique to him. I mean, people can be good and we can love, like the, I mean, we don't love to the same degree. We, we hope to love like God, but we can love and we can show kindness and we can show goodness. Now, we're not omniscient and we're not omnipresent and we're not eternal. But in all of those qualities, God has a superlative height to them, well beyond us. Some of them only he has. And they are his glory because they are unique to him in that sense. They're unique to him in the fact that they are infinite. That there's no blemish in them. Like a diamond. Well, I don't have a diamond. You ladies have a diamond, sorry. There's no carbon in the diamond. I mean, that's a pure diamond. There's no, you know, there's no impurities in the gold. It's infinite. And God possesses those in an infinite, beautiful, majestic, grand, splendid, unique way that nobody else does. No other creature on the entire universe does. And so therefore, they're referred to as his glory. Now, Moses saw that, and Ezekiel saw that, and you and I can see it every day. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. In other words, folks, the heavens are declaring, the heavens are shouting at us the glory of God. God shouts to us with his clouds. God shouts to us with his blue expanse. God shouts to us with the gold in the sunset. God shouts to us with his galaxies and stars. He's shouting to us, I am glorious. Look at me. And if you'll just open your eyes, you will see my beauty and you will see my perfections. 
Ha, but that's not all. Remember the other day, Isaiah 6, 3 says that the whole earth is full of his glory. Not only are the heavens above, but the earth around us, it too is full of the glory of God. And if we had eyes of faith this evening, we would see the glory of God everywhere. All of his perfections are on display every day, everywhere, for all men to see in every generation. We too can see, oh Lord, give us eyes to see. And unfortunately, the devil blinds the eyes of men lest the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ in the gospel should shine unto them. But, O oh Lord, as your people give us eyes of faith to see your glory and the beauty of your perfections in the heavens above and in the earth below, what would happen? Folks, what would happen if every morning when we got up to go to work, as we walked out the door, we said, O oh Lord, we just stopped at the door and said, O oh Lord, <laughs> show me your glory today. And then we went out the door with open eyes. I mean, it's there. The Bible says it. But without the right eyes, the spiritual eyes and eyes of faith, we just wander through life and wonder where God's at. Now, what would it look like? What would it look like if God wanted to show his glory to your eyes? Now, again, we can't see it like God said to Moses and live. But let's say we could see it. What would it look like? No man has seen God's glory, but what, you know, if it was possible, what would that look like to the human eyes in its unveiled form? Well, that's what Ezekiel 1 tells us about. Go back there. What would it look like, Ezekiel 1, what would it look like if God's perfections were in one place, and remember, they can't. Not only are they infinite, but God is omnipresent. And you, you, know, you can't just get God confined in one spot. But if you could, like when Solomon, and of course, God wasn't confined to one spot there, but let's say, like Solomon, when he prayed the prayer of dedication of the temple, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the people fell down. What would that look like to the human eye if you actually could see it and still live? Well, that's what we have here in Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, a little background. You may be aware that the first three chapters of Ezekiel involve God's calling of this man into ministry. And in giving that call, God gave to Ezekiel a vision which chapter 1 details for us. I read 1-1, he says he saw visions of God, and chapter 1 goes on and details what he saw in that vision. In verses 4 through 14, Ezekiel saw four living beings which are portrayed as the willing agents of God's providence. In verses 15 through 21, Ezekiel sees four wheels which many take as a display of the activity of God's providence. In verses 22 to 25, there's the description of this expanse over the heads of these living creatures. 
But what we are really interested in is in verses 26, 27, and 28. In verse 26, Ezekiel sees a throne that had the appearance of a sapphire stone. You see that there? A sapphire stone is sort of an azure blue color. So the entire throne appeared to Ezekiel to be sort of an azure, sort of an azure blue color. And then Ezekiel saw someone sitting on the throne. You can see that at the end of verse 26. And then that individual is described in verse 27. Again, in terms of color, so to speak. And then, and here's what we are interested in in verse 28... It's said that there was round about the throne a bow as is in a cloud after rain. We call that a rainbow. And folks, that rainbow, would you look at verse 28? That rainbow in the middle of the verse was the appearance of the brightness that was round about the throne. Now, what does all of that mean and look like? Well, according to the middle of the verse, what Ezekiel was seeing was the glory of the Lord. And what is described earlier in verse 28 is what the visible manifestation of God's glory looks like to the human eye. God's glory appears just, just kind of back up. There was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. All right, just keep backing up in the verse now. Now that appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord is referred to as a brightness, or the word means a radiance. A brightness or a radiance. But folks, the kind of radiance like is refracted in a cloud so that the light breaks up into the colors of the spectrum like you see in a rainbow. Or we could explain it this way. It is like what we see when we look at the sun. Now, I know you're not supposed to look at the sun, so don't go out and do that, okay? I don't have that insurance you can get when people are looking for a bit of spare cash, and they look for people like me who make comments like that, <laughs> okay? So don't go out and look at the sun. But we know, I mean, you just go out on a day, and, you, you, you know, you kind of go, and when we look at the sun, folks, what we see could be called the white light of the sun. In other words, you don't see any colors, but just the brilliant splendor and brightness of that light. And I'm summing that up with that little phrase, the white light. But if you shine that white light through a prism, that white light will be broken up into the individual colors of the rainbow. And that's what Ezekiel is describing here. He is viewing this brightness. He's viewing this radiance or white light of God's glory, but it has been broken up into its individual colors. And you can only imagine what that looked like. And someone wants me to try to describe that more for you. And I would like to know more. But I'm a little bit like Ezekiel. It sort of has the appearance of this. And it's kind of like that. And a little bit like this. But sure, some of the appearance. And Ezekiel's having a hard time describing it. So for sure, I'm not going to be able to. And it does leave us a little bit wondering, wow, I still don't comprehend that. Well, that's okay. This is infinite. But folks, you can only imagine what that looked like. <laughs> 
any one of these colors individually would be breathtaking and magnificent in and of itself. I mean, in Revelation 4, John only saw the green. Magnificent. I don't think any of us have ever seen any color in its infinite quality. I mean, pure and perfect green. No imperfections in it. No flaws in the color. No variations in the shade. Perfect, infinite green. Or blue, azure blue. Whoa! What an amazing sight. Any one of these colors would have been. But imagine putting them all together into this spectrum. No wonder Ezekiel got low before God. And of course, no doubt, and I'm reading a little bit in the text here, but no doubt, folks, what is summarized here is when it talks about this white light being broken up into its various colors is an effort to display to Ezekiel these, these attributes of God. That the, you know, there's God's glory, but that white light is made up of individual attributes. And maybe there's an attempt here. I mean, I'm reading that in a little bit. I understand that. Um, but maybe that's the reason he's seen this as this rainbow. Not sure about that. But folks, has anyone ever seen God's glory like that? I mean, he, Moses saw a veiled form of it. And Ezekiel is seen, I think we'd have to say, a veiled form of it. But has God ever manifested himself like this, even in a veiled form, to other people? Well, folks, there are some occasions recorded in the Bible when God actually did manifest his glory to individuals or to groups of people. Not often, but on some occasions. And that raises this third point. What was the purpose of that, and what effect did it have on those people? And folks, that's a significant question because on other occasions, God reveals it himself to people as an angel or as the Ancient of Days on his throne. Why didn't he reveal himself all the time to people as an angel or to the, as the Ancient of Days? Why did on some occasions he reveal himself to people through his and by his glory? What was the significance of that? Well, go back with me to Exodus 33. Okay, now I had the advantage of knowing we were going there. So I put a paper clip in Ezekiel 1, and I've also got another one in Exodus 33. Of course, you didn't have the advantage of that, so you couldn't get the preparation ahead of time with a little paper clip, but maybe you got a bookmark in there. Okay, go back to Exodus 33. What is the purpose of God revealing himself to people by means of his glory. Well, a moment ago, when we were in Exodus 33, we began with verse 18 where Moses asked God to show him his glory. Now, why did Moses ask God to do that? And folks, the reason I ask that is because Moses had seen God's glory on other occasions. This wasn't the first time he was asking for this. He saw God's glory in the cloud that led Israel out of Egypt. 
he had gone up on Mount Sinai into the glory of God. In fact, if you study the Exodus, he had actually on several occasions gone in and out of the glory of God on Mount Sinai. So he had seen the glory of God before. Why was he asking to see it again on this occasion? Well, let me just give you a little background. And this isn't going to be hard. Prior to Exodus 33, there's Exodus 32. And in Exodus 32, Moses has been up on the mount, and while he's up there, Aaron made a golden calf. And all the people fell down and began to worship the golden calf. And God's response to that is in Exodus 32, 9 and 10. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, and let my wrath wax, that it may wax hot against them, that I may consume them. How angry do you think God was over this idolatry? He was rather upset, to put it mildly. And it was only, you know the account, folks, it's only because Moses got down and interceded before God that God did not do what he said, that he did not consume these people. Nevertheless, he did bring some punishment. In chat, verses 25 to 29, 3,000 of the idolaters were slain. And in verse 33 and 35, the nation was plagued. But here's what I want you to note. Look at verse 30. Exodus 32, 30. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, Ye have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up unto the Lord. Peradventure I shall make an atonement for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Moses returned. See, he's been up there with God way back in the beginning part of the chapter. Verse number 7. I will return unto the Lord, um, <clears throat> verse 33, yet now if thou would forgive their sin, God goes, or Moses, verse 31, God goes, Moses goes up and talks to God, oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold, yet now if thou will forgive their sin, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Now look at God's response to Moses' intercession, verse 34. God says, therefore, now go, lead the people unto the place which I have spoken unto thee. Now that's reassuring. Because they have just been involved in such idolatry, God's ready to consume them. I mean, they're supposed to be going to the promised land. And God's ready to burn them up. And Moses said, Lord, forgive them. And God says, okay, I'll forgive them. Go ahead. Rather than me consuming them, go ahead and make your way to the promised land. But I'm going to send mine angel. Mine angel shall go before thee. Look, chapter 33, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Moses, depart 
and go up hence, go to the promised land, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob, unto thy seed will I give it, and I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzites, the, Hitt the uh, Hivites, the Jebusites. Now catch this, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in the midst of thee. God's not going to go with them. Why? For thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. And God knows that when they leave here, in his omniscience, he knows that when they, he, they leave here, he knows what they're going to do out there. And they did it, right? More idolatry, more grumbling, more murmuring. They wouldn't go into the land, wander 40 years in the wilderness. Exodus, or excuse me, Numbers 14, 10 times they put God to the test, it says. And God says, I'm not going to go up. Now, I will, in verse 2, send my angel. Now, catch what's going on. Idolatry. I'll consume him. No, Lord, don't do that. Okay, I won't consume him, but the idolaters will die, and there will be a plague. Moses intervenes. Lord, please forgive. God says, okay, I'll forgive. Go ahead and go, but I'm going to send my angel, and in essence... My going with you, my presence will be limited. I mean, my angel's going to go with you. And in verse 34, mine angel capitalized, mine angel shall go before thee. But in essence, my, my presence as a form of punishment will be limited. And Moses is devastated. Because that now means, as the leader, he's going to be more on his own than he ever was. And he's been leading these people out of Exodus. And I want to tell you something, that's not a job for one man. You know how hard that's been on Moses. And God says, go ahead and go, but I'm not going to go. You're on your own, Moses. You lead them. I'll send my angel to help you, but my presence is limited. And Moses said, this isn't good. And so now he pleads for God's presence. Look over in verse number 13, chapter 33, verse 13. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, God said, all right, okay, Moses, I relinquish, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And Moses comes back and says, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not hence. I'm not going, Lord. So verse 17, And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken. In other words, I'll go with you, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee my name. And he said, Moses said, I beseech thee, okay, show me your glory. God says, Go. But my presence is limited. Moses says, I can't go. It's too much. God says, okay, I'll go. Verse 17, I will do this thing that you've spoken. And Moses says, okay, Lord, as a, as a sign of assurance, show me your glory. In other words, folks, we have this little, we have this, we, what we're seeing here is that seeing God's glory is tantamount to having God's presence with you. I'll go with you. And Moses says, okay, I need a sign about that. 
Show me your glory. God's glory and his presence is tantamount to his presence. God's glory is tantamount to his presence with you. In other words, because of the people's idolatry, Moses feared that the nation had become separated from God's covenant blessing as evidenced by his presence. And therefore, he requested a sign that God had not cast them off and that his presence was actually with the nation. And that sign was the visible manifestation of God's glory. But let me add, folks, it wasn't just a sign. God's glory was not just a sign like with Gideon making the fleece wet or dry. I'm using the word sign to help us tonight. But it actually wasn't a sign. God's glory wasn't just a sign of his presence. It actually was his presence. It was, his, it was, it was God in his full nature there with those people. So I would conclude this, folks. What is the purpose of God manifesting himself in his glory? Well, I could say that it's the manifestation of God's presence with his people, but I would rather put it this way. God visibly showing his glory is an outward manifestation of his presence for the purpose of creating awe A-W-E, for the purpose of creating awe in the eyes and hearts of the beholder in order to affect their behavior, their attitudes, their speech, their actions. Now let me repeat that. God's glory is the outward manifestation of his presence, but there is a purpose in that. For the purpose of creating awe in the eyes and hearts of the beholder so that what they have seen then actually affects their behavior. And you can see that here in this incident with Moses. Seeing God's glory was a reassurance to Moses that God was going to go with the nation. Moses was awed at what he saw, and it was a reassurance. He not only fell down before God in worship, but then he said to the people, okay, come on, let's go. God's with us. And affected his behavior when at one time he wasn't going to go. Now he says, okay, let's go. Moses was awed. So two little points of clarification. I added that little bit for the purpose of creating awe in the eyes and hearts of the beholder, folks. I added that because that seems, seems to be the foundational intent of God manifesting his presence to his people this way and not as an angel. In other words, folks, God could have manifested himself some other way to these people, I mean, God could have manifested himself by having the sky cloud up. And here we are, we're needing guidance for God, and five minutes later, the whole sky is covered in clouds. Mount Sinai was covered in clouds. God could have done that. Or what about this? God could have manifested his presence with us by causing the wind to blow. And I could actually feel God's presence with me. God could have used other means to manifest his presence why did he use his glory like this, this white light broken up into its colors like this? Magnificent spectrum of color because he wanted to awe people so that their behavior was then affected. You know how slow we are. Well, maybe I should say you know how quick we are to forget things. Why, we go to camp and God speaks to our heart in a camp meeting, and there we are at the campfire and we make a commitment to God, and the next morning at 8 o'clock we can't even remember what we said. The feeling is all gone, so to speak. 
We sit in a service like this and God ministers to our heart. And two days later, we can hardly remember what happened. We're so slow because of our human nature, to, so quick to forget. And here is God. I mean, when you get a picture of this, when you get a picture of Christ in his glory at the Mount of Transfiguration, 30 years later, Peter's still remembering it. You don't get that out of your mind. There's an awe that God is attempting to create in the minds of these people and in their hearts and their eyes so that their behavior is affected long term. And that's exactly, of course, what happened with these people. Here are these people, and they've sinned. God says, okay, go. Moses says, I can't. <laughs> Unless your presence goes with me, I won't go. And God says, okay, I'll show you my glory. My presence will go with you. He passed by, and he showed him his glory. But, folks, he showed him those attributes, summed up with the word goodness. Do you know why? And there's this, now I'm moving a little bit now. He showed him... He showed people his glory to bring about awe to affect their behavior according to the circumstance they find themselves in. Now follow me on this. He showed them his glory to bring about awe to affect their behavior in light of the circumstance they found themselves in. Example, here's Israel. They've committed abominable sin God's going to burn them up consume them but he says go ahead and go and Moses says well I'm not going God says okay I'll go with you Moses says show me your glory all of God's attributes his patience his long suffering his graciousness his kindness why did he show Moses his forgiveness and his you know, his mercy and his gracious and being long-suffering. Why did he show Moses those particular aspects of his glory on this occasion? Because, folks, that's what these need, people needed in light of their idolatry. God said go, but they need to be assured that not just, you know, not just that God's going, but God in his goodness is going to go with them. They just abandoned his goodness. They made him so angry he's going to burn them. And God says, go. Moses says, we're not going without you, Lord. And God says, okay, I'll show you. I'll go with you. But the part of his glory he showed related specifically to their circumstance. They needed to know that God really had forgiven them. They needed to know that God really was merciful, that God really was long-suffering, that his goodness really would go with them through the hot desert sands all the way up there to that country. And there's a reason that God showed them. In other words, folks, God displays his glory to people to bring about awe to affect their behavior in light of that particular circumstance. So, okay, so here's number 16 and Korah. Huh, what about Korah? Remember number 16? Here's Korah, and he gets 250 of the leaders. 250. That's a lot of men. And they come before Moses, and they said, Moses, who are you to lead us? We're just as gifted as you. Get out of the way and let us have a go. And while they're there, 
Well, the Bible says Moses gathered all the congregation against, the, against them unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And folks, while they're gathered at the door of the congregation, congregation of the tabernacle, it says, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto the congregation. What do you think God was trying to say about his presence on that occasion? Well, I'll tell you what it meant. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And God opened the ground, and he swallowed them up. 250 men. They're standing out there in the street, and all the congregation is gathered around them, and everybody watches. The glory of the Lord appears. No! And the ground just opens up. Boom! Closes up, there goes dad. There goes granddad. Mommy, where'd he go? The glory of the Lord consumed him. Not only God's presence, folks, but it creates an awe to affect people's behavior in light of that particular circumstance. So you know what the people thought of that? Do you remember in number 16 what the people thought about that? If you read later in the chapter, it says the people murmured against Moses and Aaron because of what happened. You know what happened? The glory of God showed up again. Yeah, and God sent a plague, and 14,700 of those people died. I don't know how many people are in Grafton. 14,700 died because they murmured at what the glory of God had done, and the glory of God showed up again. The awe to affect people's behavior in light of that particular circumstance. Or folks, think of 2 Chronicles 5, 13 and 14 when God displayed his glory when they brought the ark into the temple. Completely different situation. Or 2 Chronicles 7 when Solomon dedicated the temple to God. Or Luke chapter 2, verse 9 when the angels appeared to the shepherds to announce the Lord's birth and it says the glory of the Lord shone round about them. That wasn't judgment. That wasn't fire trying to consume the shepherds. <laughs> or the transfiguration of Christ. Or in the life of the apostle John when he was exiled to Patmos. Or Saul on the road to Damascus. In other words, folks, on these occasions, the awe was produced in their heart in light of the circumstance that was there. And in some cases, that awe gave assurance in the face of doubt. In some cases, that awe brought fear because of the sin and subsequent judgment. In some cases, that awe consoled and comforted the anxious heart. At times, that awe produced worship for people. At times, that awe even compelled a man like Ezekiel to enter the ministry. There's God's glory. And often, folks, God displays his glory as an outward manifestation of his personal presence for the purpose of creating awe in the heart of the beholder in order to instruct and bring about a certain behavior. And someone says, well, that's all great, but we don't even see God's glory today. But did you know we're better off? We really are. God's glory is an outward manifestation of his personal presence, but when we come to know Christ as his Savior, his presence actually comes to live right inside me. And it doesn't come and go like the glory did. And I don't have time to develop that, folks, but we also, according to 2 Peter, when Peter was talking about seeing the transfiguration, the manifestation of God, he actually then said, but we actually have a more sure word of prophecy. 
you can forget what the glory looks like. Somebody can say, no, it was the green that stood out to me. No, 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 you, well, you weren't even there. You were only 13 at the time. You couldn't remember that. And people can get all confused and forget what they saw. But you don't forget when it's written down in black and white. Everybody, every person in here can turn and see the glory of God. We've got a more sure word of prophecy. So don't sit around tomorrow and languish. Lord, show me your glory. Oh, Lord, I'm so much of a, you know, I am so, you know, what hope have we ever got of being a good Christian? We can't even see God's glory. Oh, that I was there on Mount Sinai with Moses like Joshua. No, no, we got a more sure word of prophecy, folks. So what are we to do with God's glory? And I'm about done. So what are we to do with God's glory, folks? Well, if time permitted, we could talk tonight about seeing God's glory in the heavens above and the earth below. If time permitted this evening, we could dwell on, worship, on the worship that should come from God's glory. But I just want to leave us with these two reflections this evening. Here's what God's glory is. Here's what it looks like. Here's the effect it's to have on people. What should we do with it? We won't turn there for time. Most of you are familiar with it. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, it says, But we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory. And our spiritual blindness is an open face. Our spiritual blindness has been taken away so that we can look into God's word and we can see his glory. We, what do you mean we can see his glory? We can look in the Bible and we can see his individual attributes at work. And even over this conference, we've seen some of that happen. We've seen some of God's attributes at work. But you can look in the Bible and you can read about them and you can study them, and you can kind of define them, and then you can look at Israel and other people and see them on display and see God at work. You actually can study God's patience and God's mercy. You can look and see God's glory. And as you do, the Holy Spirit in that verse, the verse says the Holy Spirit can change you from glory to glory which can mean two things. Number one, he can change you, if I could say, from attribute to attribute. It's like God works on you. You know, you're here tonight, and you say, man, my, I got a real problem with patience. Let's pick on that one, because nobody has that problem, right? <laughs> no. I've got a real problem with patience. So God works on patience for a while. One glory, he works on one glory for a while. Now, you never ultimately get a whole handle on patience. But you're a lot better than you were 10 years ago. And so then God says, you know, looks to me like in their life they've, they, they've got a problem with forgiveness. Let's work on that glory a while. Let's work on mercy a while. They sure like to receive mercy, but they've got a hard time showing it, James says. And as we behold God's glories... God changes us from one glory to another glory and from love to mercy to kindness. You know the fruit of the Spirit, the glories, the attributes of God? Just cooperate with the Spirit and he can produce those glories in you. 
But that also means, 2 Corinthians 13, folks, not only from one attribute to another, but probably even the degrees of that. I mean, maybe you've got a little patience, but you'd like to have more, so you pray, Lord, show me patience. So you know what he does tomorrow with you? He causes somebody to run up the back of your car. <laughs> will that produce patience? I don't know. I know a lot of things it will produce. <laughs> but you see, and, and so God begins to work, and he helps to grow us in those glories. And that means this, that we need to incarnate God's glory by being changed into his image. That's what one thing we need to do from this. And as we do, you know what happens? We will reflect the glory of the Lord. Moses got up there in the glory of the Lord, and he came down, and the people said, Whoa, Moses, put a veil on your face. We can't even look at you. Moses is reflecting the glory of God. And you want to be a witness to your workmates. And you want to witness to your unsafe family members. And you want to witness to your neighbors. But they won't even let you talk one word about the gospel. All right, why don't you show them the glory of God? Why don't you be patient? Why don't you be gracious? Why don't you some kindness? And you can think of ways of manifesting those glories to those people. Why don't you reflect God's glory? As you grow in it, let it radiate out. Incarnate God's glory. That's something that we can learn here. And as we saw this morning, folks, that was the whole point of, well, I shouldn't say the whole, but that was part of the point of the nation of Israel. They were to reflect God's glory to the nations around them. And so are we. And whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Manifest God's glory. Be a faithful worker at work. Don't take 20 minutes on your break when the boss said you're only supposed to take 15 manifest the glory of God. When everybody's at work and they're running down the police, we don't need to do that. We don't need to run down our authorities. Manifest the glory of God. When you're driving down the road and your children are saying to you, Daddy, I thought the speed limit was 50. <laughs> and you're going 70. Well, own up to it. I'm sorry, that's right. Let's pull over here and ask the Lord to forgive me or whatever, you know. Driving down the road. Oh, son, look at that sunset. You know, that must be what heaven's like. Manifest the glory of God to people. And I think the last little reflection that I, at least I want to point out this, this evening just very quickly is this, folks. Not only incarnate God's glory by being changed in his image, but listen, yearn for heaven where you can see God's glory and live under it. Do you know that'll be the case? Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. Last reference. I'll make some comments and we'll stop then. Appreciate your attention tonight. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. John looking to heaven, Revelation 21, 22, and I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it, and the city had no need of the sun, neither the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God 
did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. God's glory, folks, will lighten heaven. But do you know particularly who it is that will be the glory and the light in heaven? Look at this. It says, and the Lamb is the light. You see that word light? And right before it is the word lighten. Those are two different words. For the glory of the Lord did lighten it, and the Lamb is, and that word light means the lamp. He is the lamp thereof. The glory of God is going to lighten heaven, but in particular, it will be the Lamb. He's the lamp. He's the floodlight of God's glory. And you can just imagine that when you think about heaven. Imagine shining the white light of God's glory through the prism of Jesus Christ and all of the fruit of the Spirit come out. Why, here's the streets that are transparent gold. Here are the walls made of jasper that are transparent and the foundations radiating in all of those colors of the gems and the gold off of the city being like of the city being like crystal. Imagine the brilliant, blinding glory of God just shining and reflecting off of all of that. It's like turning a hundred CDs upside down and viewing all of that. What will heaven be like? Why yearn for heaven? How can a man settle down in this world when he has this kind of thing to look forward to? Seeing the glory of God and over all of eternity living under the brilliant white light of it with all of those colors being displayed. Set your heart on this. Use your imagination. And as hymn writer said, turn your eyes upon the Lamb and the things of earth, the problems and trials and duties and routines of life, folks, all of those things will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So I love that hymn, O Blessed Contemplation. When with trouble here I sigh, I have a home beyond the river, that I'll enter by and by. I have a home beyond the river. I have a mansion bright and fair. I have a home beyond the river. I will dwell with Jesus there. And what a wonderful prospect to live under the light of God's glory for all of eternity. And the Lamb being the lamp. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time tonight and the opportunity of looking into your word. And Lord, we pray that you'll minister this to our hearts tonight. Encourage us now as we go back to our places of employment or different spheres of life, even different geographical locations tomorrow, Lord. Strengthen us and give us a vision again every day of your glory. Help us to live for that and to look forward to the day when we will be with your Son. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.